This is what's called a stepped wedge cluster randomised control trial. It's actually about making every day really meaningful and purposeful. Even conventional or complementary medicines weren't working for them. Something is going on in the kinds of spaces that we are building. They kept trying to find something else. Think. Think Health on 2SER 107.3. Hi, welcome to the show. I'm Ellen Leibeter. This week, we thought we'd share one of our favourite programs from last year. It's a topic you might be familiar with this Easter, food. Me like yums. Which yums do you like? We'll hear a little bit more from Charlie soon, looking at how your parents influence your eating habits. And we'll also discuss whether those chocolates left by the Easter Bunny are doing you any good. Have you ever wondered why you like some foods and dislike others? Maybe you love broccoli, strawberries and chocolate, but absolutely cannot stand spinach, tomato and kiwi fruit. Well, the answer could be your parents. There is a whole body of research dedicated to how your parents influence what you eat. It's a complex combination between your genetics, what your mum eats while pregnant and breastfeeding, and how food is introduced to you as a child. It's 5pm in the Tilton's household, and it's dinner time. Heidi is preparing dinner for Charlie and Oliver. The entree tonight is vegetable fritters with carrots, peas and corn. They're not great just yet at eating veggies, but I find if I hide them in food, they're a little more likely to eat them. So we have a lot of bolognese and things where I can hide mushrooms and carrots and all sorts of things. Um, so we'll have to wait and see how they go with these tonight, but fingers crossed they should work because they're disguised enough. Charlie is three and Oliver is 16 months old. This is Charlie doing my job as journalist. Well, you can say, um, hello, my name's Charlie and I love eating carrots and broccoli. They're delicious. Hi, Charlie. Um, this is some nice and is it? Um, what do you like, Mum? Oh, um, I like um, lamb mm. and I like some carrots too. Oh. What about you? Mm. What do you like? You tell the microphone what you like. Um, what do you um, I like some yums. Which yums do you like? Um, um, porridge. If you missed it, Charlie's favourite yum is porridge. Oliver is doing well with his veggie intake at the moment, but it's a bit of a challenge to get Charlie to eat vegetables. It's a bit harder with him because he's cottoning on to more of the, uh, the things before I can hide them. He's very good with fruit, but not so great with vegetables. So what fruits do you like? Do you like strawberries? Yeah. Yeah? What's your favourite fruit? Fruit salad. Fruit salad? Yeah. That's a lot of fruit. This little guy's getting a bit better with his veggie intake. We've just moved off purees where I could put anything in there um, to the more finger foody kind of things that he can help himself to, which is getting a little bit easier because it 
took a long time for him to be interested in feeding himself. If we're failing at vegetables one night, then I'll usually just cut up a whole heap of watermelon or something and throw that on the plate just so that we've had some kind of natural food with our... Yes. The entree goes down a treat with Ollie, but Charlie is not a fan. Ollie will eat it all, so if you want, you can have a whole one to yourself. Is it crunchy? Mm. What do you think about it? Mommy don't like it. You don't like it? Don't like veggies? Don't like the fritter? Okay. Well, it's got a 50% success rate tonight then. Heidi is not the first parent to struggle with getting kids to eat their vegetables. Parents will employ a range of strategies to encourage their kids to try new foods, with some more effective than others. Georgie Russell is a postdoctoral research fellow in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. She has recently released a study looking at the methods used by parents to get kids to try new foods and eat their veggies. So we were interested in looking at whether parents use specific behaviours to influence food preference. So the reason behind that was that um, sometimes parents might focus on food intake. So let's say that I want my my daughter to eat broccoli so I can use specific strategies to get her to eat broccoli so her her consumption of broccoli increases. But some of those strategies like, um, you know, pressuring or saying if you eat your broccoli you can have a treat later actually reduce preference. So you will increase intake in the short term but you'll reduce liking in the longer term. So we were interested in looking at um, what parents do if they have specific strategies that they use to influence liking. So it's a sort of a longer-term goal than the short-term food intakes. Heidi used the reward system for Charlie while I was over for dinner. He even has a special plate to facilitate it. Tell me about the plate. What happens? Um, it's in a toy scene. Yeah? And what else happens, Charlie? Why don't you explain? So I eat eat through all the different bits and at the end I get a yummy prize. It doesn't yummy pies. So we've got all the different holes in here and we put our food in. I usually put meat in four or five of them and fruit or veggies in the other ones and then at the end a nice little treat and encourage him to, <laughs> to get through all of, his, uh, all of his meal. He gets the prize at the end. So he's usually very good at eating everything on the plate. What's the prize? The prize can be anything from a strawberry to a chocolate frog or an Easter egg, just whatever I've got. And often if it is something like chocolate, he'd prefer fruit, so it gets left behind. But it's enough to encourage him to eat all the food, so it tends to work most of the time. So how do you get your kids to like their veggies over the long term? Georgie Russell again. Um, well, the most important one, and that we saw in our group of parents who had kids with really healthy food preferences, was what we call repeated exposure. So that's just um, when you offer your child a food that you want them to like and they probably won't like it in the first instance, you just keep offering it. So you offer it again later on. So, you know, a few days later, a week later, whatever it is, might be in a different format. So it might be in a a pasta instead of, you know, on a piece of toast or something like that. Um, But they just keep repeatedly offering it and that was... um, That's really the most important one. And whereas um, if... Parents um, don't do this, then they're not really giving their child the opportunity to learn to like that food because it often takes several exposures to a food to like it. And do you ever reintroduce food week to week? So if they won't eat 
a vegetable one week, we bring it back a couple of weeks later? Yeah, probably a couple of weeks um, or even a couple of months if it's, you know, if he's had a really bad response to it and hasn't wanted to go anywhere near it. Just enough time that I've introduced um, you know, a few variable things in between that he would have totally forgotten about what he didn't like before. Um, I did it more when Charlie was a baby, just kept on reintroducing things rather than moving on to the next um, thing. But with Oliver, just being the second child, it was just always easier to forget about it for a little while and try again a few months later. But it's not just how you introduce food as a parent, but the way in which you introduce it. There is some research which suggests your parenting style has an impact on the uptake of food by little kitties. Sean Somerset is an Associate Professor of Nutrition and Public Health at the Australian Catholic University in Brisbane. In his research, he has looked at three parenting types, authoritative, authoritarian and permissive, to find out their effect on children's eating habits. In layman's terms, authoritative parenting is where children are given the autonomy to make decisions guided by their parents, authoritarian parents are quite forceful in telling children what to do, and permissive parents leave children to their own devices. I think if we were to look at those three general parenting styles, the style that seems to be consistent with with general research on development of dietary behaviours, the uh, authoritative style of parenting where children are left to explore their own um, their own food uh, preferences but under the guidance of parents. Um, an authoritative parent when introducing vegetables into a, a child's diet um, would present the present the food as, a, as an option. So you might give the child three or four different uh, types of vegetables uh, to try and allowed them to try it. But Sean cautions against using these blunt descriptions of parents and says the issue of diet is a much more complex question. It, it's uh, stereotyping a very complex behaviour with three general domains of, of activity. When you, when you think about how complex um, diets are and all the different factors which contribute to uh, somebody's dietary behaviours, then, then you start to wonder... Is such a, a broad uh, definition of parenting really capturing the types of uh, activities um, that, that parents engage in? Back in the Tiltons household, Charlie is up to his main meal, corn, carrot and peas with lamb. He's about halfway through his plate. Sure, it's not capsicum. <laughs> what is it? Mate, you're kidding me. Ollie's gonna eat your broccoli. No. Are you gonna eat it? Okay. Quick, open up then. Are you eat boy food? Ollie's gonna eat big boy food. No. What does he eat? Baby shoes. Now, Ollie really wants to eat that egg, so unless you finish up your dinner, I'm going to give it to him. It's not just what you are encouraged to eat as a child that influences food preference. It can also be your genetics. 
Emma Beckett is a PhD candidate in food science and human nutrition at the University of Newcastle and the CSIRO. She explained that each of us gets a set of genes from our mother and our father, and these genes have receptors that determine how we will respond to bitter or sweet flavours. Yeah, so you get your genes from your parents that give you the specific type of receptor you're going to have, but then the signals that that receptor sends can be modified. So, you know, when you have your first, your very first cup of coffee or your very first glass of beer, you don't really like the flavour of it because it's very bitter and no one likes their first sip. But then over time you learn that coffee makes you feel good and beer makes you feel good. So you start dampening down those, those taste responses so you enjoy the taste of those bitter foods more. In addition, what mothers eat and drink while pregnant also has an influence. So we think what's happening in early life is that when you meet those flavours in your mum's breast milk or amniotic fluid, it's telling you, yes, they're safe things to eat because my mum ate them. So your brain doesn't tell you that they're as bad flavours as your receptors might otherwise tell you to. There's research with things like carrots, getting mum to eat lots of carrots while... um, the baby's growing or getting the mum to eat lots of carrots and drink carrot juice while she's breastfeeding versus mums who have been told to avoid carrots. And then when the baby gets old enough to eat solids, they offer it carrot-flavoured foods. And the mums who have had lots of carrots in their diets, the babies are more receptive to the carrot-flavoured foods, whereas the babies who haven't met carrots earlier um, don't like that flavour as much. However, if mum doesn't eat carrots while pregnant, it doesn't automatically mean you'll be a carrot hater for life. The experiences of food in utero is only a starting point. But I think what you get in your prenatal and early antenatal life is is your jumping off point. So how easy it is to convince your child that that, the broccoli flavour or the carrot flavour is a good flavour. I mean, there's still lots of things you can do to get them to eat the foods you want them to, but it's giving you a a better jumping off point, I guess, to, to start that process. So why have we evolved this way? Well, it harks back to the days before food labelling, when we weren't quite sure if a type of berry was poisonous or not. A lot of taste is for safety. So bitter taste particularly, most bitter things are poisons in the natural environment. So if your mum eats healthy bitter vegetables while you're growing inside her or by getting breastfed by her as you grow up, then you're learning that those are the safe flavours that you can eat with them not being poisons. So you've got to have that introduction to tell you what's safe. It's a slow process to get children to like new foods. And at the Tiltons, it was nearly six o'clock before Charlie finished his meal. Remember, we started this journey about an hour ago. Is there a time where you've just given up? Yeah. Yes, and they usually end up getting Vegemite sandwiches because it just gets a bit too frustrating. But I try and push it for as long as I can because... I know that they sleep better if they get a full big meal into them rather than just a sandwich. Tonight, there were no tears and we had one happy toddler with a treat. And one last bit of meat and then you're finished. Eat the last bit for the microphone, show the microphone you're eating your last bit of meat. And we got there eventually. Is it? Good boy. Here you go. Look, you finished all your dinner. What do you get now? You're listening to Think Health on 2SER. Up next, we are continuing the chocolate trend and find out what you can do to minimise the harm from a chocolate binge this weekend. You're listening to Think Health on 2SER 107.3.
Now, chances are, if you haven't already received or eaten some Easter eggs today, you will do soon. But is having a bit of a splurge on Easter Sunday detrimental to your health? Or is there some positives to it? We hit the streets of Sydney to find out what people would be up to this weekend before consulting the experts. So what what will you be eating this Easter Sunday? Chocolate. Definitely chocolate. It's a break from your normal routine? (laughs) Not really. (laughs) To be honest, I have it most days, but yeah. Many, many chocolate eggs, preferably cream eggs. They're my favourite. Is this a break from your traditional routine? Um, I'd be lying if I said yes, <laughs> but um, I'll probably be eating a lot more chocolate on Sunday than I usually do. I will be eating probably hot cross buns and, of course, chocolate. Yeah. Chewing gum because I gave up gum. Chocolate. Yeah, heaps and heaps of chocolate. A lot of food because I'm Italian, so there's going to be like the pastas and then all the fish and... It's going to be the whole thing, literally. Um, for dessert, I don't know. Probably we'll eat chocolate to some extent. Uh, I'm going to be making a roast lamb, actually. Um, is that the answer you're after, or am I just saying chocolate or something? Are you making roast lamb? Will we be having any chocolate? What, what's for dessert? For dessert? Look, I mean, I'm going to be probably alone this Easter, which is uh, means I won't be involved in any kind of egg hunting or anything like that, but I may have a couple of stray hot cross buns around the cupboard somewhere, which I might be tucking into early on Sunday morning. That's my plan. I Chocolate eggs, Easter bunnies, big family meals. Easter is a time of decadence and gluttony. If you have managed to avoid the temptation for the last couple of months in the supermarket, good on you. You probably deserve an egg today. And if you do eat some chocolate, you might be getting some good out of it. On Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, they stated that chocolate provides you with the same rush of hormones and, and as, as does falling in love. And now, I mean, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, it's got to be right. Yeah. I mean, it's got to be an evidence-based movie. <laughs> yes. So, well, there's that, there's that benefit. Well, unless you are Augustus Gloob, of course. That's Elizabeth Denny Wilson, Associate Professor in the Faculty of Health at the University of Technology, Sydney. Although, all jokes aside, chocolate does have some benefit. There might be uh, some lowering of blood pressure that might occur from eating chocolate. But before people ditch their antihypertensive drugs and swap for chocolate, um, the the effects are really modest and they would be offset if people were to gain weight. So you would have to find a way of eating chocolate without gaining weight. Titania is a personal trainer at Activate Fit on Harris. She says your hard work won't go out the window if you moderate your chocolate consumption. Yes, in moderation, chocolate is pretty good for you. Obviously, you don't want to go for the full pack of Cadbury eggs over Easter. But if you keep it on moderation, just maybe a couple of chocolate eggs as a nice treat after your dinner. Yeah, absolutely, you can have it. And that's the magic word, moderation. I'm going to add another M word, though, mindfulness. Another term that's really becoming um, much more popular in terms of eating is mindfulness. So being mindful about what you're eating, not having the uh, 10 small chocolate eggs that just, by the way, 
are about 65 calories each. So eating 10 of them, which would be pretty easy, is getting up around a quarter of your daily intake. And most people would not moderate their daily intake. They'd just eat that on top. So not not just sort of ploughing through those eggs without really thinking about what you're doing. So being thoughtful and being mindful that perhaps you're going to have two of those eggs rather than just mindlessly continuing to peel that egg and pop that egg in your mouth and not really notice it. Which is another big problem over Easter, portion size. Dr Tracy Burrows is a senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle and an accredited dietitian. She has been researching portion sizes and found that both adults and children tend to overestimate the portion sizes for a variety of foods, with chocolate being one of the most overestimated. Well, basically we did a research study that looked at the family unit. So we looked at portion size and grouped people together in terms of what the average um, people consume. So what's their typical portion size? And we compared that to the recommendations. And then we also compared it for adults and children separately. But overall, chocolate was um, overestimated, like the typical portion size of chocolate was overestimated by both parents and children, about 1.5 times the recommended um, amount. So, And then when you looked at broken down by the parent and the children, it generally tended to be the child who was more overestimating that portion size of chocolate. And now we come to the negatives of chocolate, their energy density. Elizabeth Denny Wilson again. So there's a gold bunny that seems to be on every supermarket shelf at the moment and has been for several months. Now that gold bunny uh, packs a thousand a thousand calories per bunny. So that bunny would be pretty easy to eat on your own, and I reckon some people could probably eat more than one bunny. <laughs> and um, and in that would be sixty six grams of fat, which is about twice as much fat as most people should eat in a day, especially if you're trying to lose weight. And um, when I was doing a, a bit of thinking about, about this interview, I thought, well, what would you have to do to if you, if you ate your normal diet that day, but you also ate a gold bunny, so with a 1,000 extra calories, what you'd need to do is you would need to um, go for a run to burn that off. But you'd have to go for a run for 90 minutes. And the average person can't run for 90 no. minutes. Or you could go for a walk for uh, four hours. And that four-hour walk kind of eats into your holiday. Excuse the pun. Will the people of Sydney be heading out for a run as soon as their eggs have digested? Will you be back at the gym on Tuesday working it all off? Yeah, definitely. I'm still working off my Christmas, so, yeah, I'm pretty lazy, but, yeah. Um, I hope so. (laughs) If I'm not in a chocolate coma, hopefully, yes. And will you be, you know, back at the gym on Tuesday, exercising, working it all off? Yes, definitely. No, that's all right. I'm too far gone already. <laughs> I ate two yesterday. That's a 16-hour walk. I couldn't even park on. I haven't walked 16 hours in my life. That being said, it's all well and good for us as adults to be mindful and eat in moderation and then know we have to go for our 90-minute run to burn off the bunny. But what about the kids? Well, for kids that that are still young enough that the adults in their family have the kind of say about what comes into the house and what gets consumed, it's just that little bit easier because you can be a bit 
you can you can restrict the number of eggs that come into the house. The tricky thing is that in in our environment, everybody seems to want to give your child an egg. The butcher wants to give you an egg. The fruit shop wants to give you an egg. So you end up with these whole heap of extra eggs that you hadn't bargained for as a parent. And that becomes really tricky because the other thing that I would suggest is that you restrict the egg, the chocolate consumption to to Sunday, to the day that they're given out and you eat your eggs that day and then you move on with the rest of your life, (laughs) hopefully incorporating a bit of physical activity to balance them out. So the the most important thing is that if if things are on display, if we can see things, and this goes for all foods, we're much more likely to eat them. So we can use this to our advantage, for example, having a fruit bowl or having um, healthy snacks available all the time for children increases their consumption of those snacks. But similarly, if we have a bowl of chocolate eggs on the kitchen bench because it's Easter, then those eggs are going to be eaten. But if those eggs are in a container in the fridge or in a container in the cupboard where they're not being seen every time you walk past them, then they're less likely to be eaten. But if you don't eat Easter eggs, maybe you're more of a fan of traditional hen's eggs. After all, they are better for you. Titania again. You know, actually in Eastern Europe, it's very common for Easter to give as a present the actual hand eggs rather than chocolate eggs. And the first time I saw this tradition of giving as a present chocolate eggs, it was in Australia. And I was actually really surprised. So in my country, in Russia, it's uh, a tradition to present other people with actual eggs. And of course, it's pretty healthier option rather than the chocolate. And Elizabeth agrees. Start your day with a hen egg and you'll be thanking yourself later. So if you were to start your Easter breakfast with a, a good feed of, of eggs um, with some whole grain toast or some grainy bread toast, then that would set you up for a really a really good day. The average person would really benefit from a breakfast that contains egg because the, the high level of protein is really um, it's really beneficial in filling you up. And so you don't tend to be looking for that other snack a little bit later on in the morning and it can get you all the way to lunchtime. So there you have it. Kick off your day with some hen eggs and maybe add a chocolate egg for dessert. And if you have already had that egg, you know what to do. Get walking. Yet if you'd like to find out more about anything you heard today, you can visit us at 2ser.com forward slash thinkhealth. You can also tweet us at 2ser. Please remember that journalists are not doctors. If we've made you ask questions, which is great, go and see your GP. This show is produced with the support of the University of Technology Sydney Faculty of Health. And remember to subscribe, rate and review us on iTunes if you enjoyed what you heard today. I'm Ellen Leibeter. See you next week for more.